Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. One of the interesting things that happens after the resurrection is that angels show up, specifically two angels and pairs show up three different times. And each time the angels show up, they ask questions. They don't make statements. And it's in contrast to the incarnation when Jesus was born, where they didn't ask questions, they made proclamations. And it's curious that the gospel writers only record angels asking questions after Jesus raised from the dead. And largely because questions are powerful. Questions shape culture. And one of the things that historians have noted is that the early church, after the resurrection of Jesus, had a distinct, potent, strong culture that drew in and eventually changed the ancient world and still does today. The Harvard Business Review came out with an article called The Surprising Power of Questions. It says, questioning is a uniquely powerful tool for unlocking value in organizations or cultures. It spurs learning and the exchange of ideas. It fuels innovation and performance improvement. It builds rapport and trust among members. And although question asking is an art form in kind of our modern society, it's also seemed to be the tactic that God used through his angelic messengers to help form the questions that would then shape the culture of his early church. So here are the three questions the angels asked after the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, why are you standing there? Number two, what are you looking for? And number three, why are you crying? Why do you stand? Why do you look? Why do you cry? Questions that invite us into something. Um, it helps us look deeper and to explore. Tim Hughes, um, an amazing worship leader, as a quote, he says, be an explorer, not an expert. And one of the reasons why I love these three questions that the angels asked and the reason why Jesus asked questions all the time during his life is because it invites us to be explorers of God rather than just experts of God. So I want to walk through these three questions that the angels ask in between the resurrection up to the ascension, and to see how those questions actually end up giving us clues to the culture of the resurrection, the culture of these new believers. The first question, why do you stand there? We're going to talk about how that forms a culture of waiting and witness. So Acts chapter 1 verse 10 says this, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. This is during the ascension of Jesus. He's been walking around 40 days, showing himself uh, to his disciples and into crowds. It says, then suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. And I love it. So you can, you can imagine you're, you're the disciples. You're already in shock because you saw your rabbi crucified. You're more in shock because then you saw him raised from the dead. 
and then you're hanging with him the next 40 days. And then all of a sudden he gets taken up in a cloud and you're just standing there witnessing this. And then two angels show up and then ask, ask kind of a, uh, a belittling question. And they just say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? And it comes with this implication of two things. Number one, it says he's coming back, which kind of points back to like, well, if he's coming back, why wouldn't you just stand there? But unless Jesus had given them instruction that after he left, they were supposed to be doing something. And so this first question, why do you stand here? Has this immediate, if you turn back, what you see is that Jesus gave them instructions to do. There's something that he's asked them to do. And it's the, he asked them to wait and he asked them to be a witness. Acts chapter one, starting in verse one, we see him invite the disciples to wait. This book begins like this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. I mean, that's, that's something we should highlight, that Jesus had one message after he resurrected. And it was about the kingdom, the domain of God's presence and reality. Verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard. After Jesus ascended, they did just that. We skip down to verse 14. It says this. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so there is this instruction given them just to wait for the gift, which we find out later is the the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they take a posture that the resurrected Christ created a culture of his people waiting prayerfully on him. The next thing, if you keep reading Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That, that word witness is interesting. Um, in our culture, it immediately can draw kind of two conclusions. One, a witness has kind of a judicial kind of understanding that some we've seen something or called to be a witness, or it can kind of have like kind of old Southern uh, Bible Belt roots, right? To give a witness to Jesus. Uh, the Greek word here is interesting. It's the Greek word martus, which is where we get our English word martyr from. Now, before you read this and start thinking that every single person uh, filled with the Holy Spirit is to go to be a martyr, um, it's important to understand that that Greek word martyr is, is translated well as witness. It was a judicial term. It describes someone who saw something and then would have to testify in court. But it also finds itself in extreme cases like the stoning of Stephen as the first martyr called him a martyr, a witness. To Jesus. And so you see these, these contrasting two commands. What, what is, when the angels say, why are you standing here? Their understanding is Jesus has already asked you to do two things. Number one is wait. And number two is that when the Holy Spirit does come on you, you are to be a martyr, a witness 
to that. And so the question is, if we are to carry on this resurrection culture, how do we be people who do well in waiting and do well in witnessing? So just a couple, couple thoughts here. When it comes to waiting, we have never been in a time in history where we have been uh, worse at waiting. I, I don't know if humanity's ever been great at waiting, but we definitely, with how fast-paced our life is and how much technology is at our fingertips, uh, we don't know how to wait for anything. And if we are waiting, we're in line, then we need to be playing a game on our phone. We need to be doing something that's catching our attention. We're trying to be productive. We don't know just how to, to wait. And so I want to just invite you if that the very first thing that Jesus didn't say is get to work. He says, wait on the gift, wait on the Holy Spirit. And I think that posture of a follower of Jesus is so important because we see Jesus do this throughout his life as he waited on his father and got away. Just a couple of things. We, um, we recently came out uh, with some cards called Practicing the Way Cards. And they're just different spiritual disciplines or practices that help create a posture of waiting on the Lord. Things like silence and solitude, fasting, Sabbath. And so I would encourage you, before we move on to what it means to be a witness to Jesus, how are you kind of organizing your life to make sure that you can wait on the Lord? Because after they waited on the Lord, we'll, we'll find out when the Holy Spirit does come in Acts chapter 2, the assignment was to be his witness, that be that martis. And that kind of has some implications too. There's, if we were to look at how it's used in the Bible, three things. Number one is that to be a witness means to open our eyes to see God working all around us, to open our mouths to attest to the good news to our neighbor and to open our hearts to the possibility of becoming a martyr or a sacrifice, whether it's socially, financially, physically, um, that we are seeing what Jesus has done. We are attesting, we are speaking of what he has done and that we are living sacrificially as a testament to what he's done. And so the very first thing, why are you standing there? I just want to speak to some of us who you think that the whole Christian life is kind of this frozen moment waiting for Jesus to come back. And the angels cry to us is, no, you've been called to wait on the Lord and you've been called to witness to Jesus. The second question that comes up with these angels is, why do you look? Let's look at Luke 24. It says this, while they were wandering about this, well, oh, sorry, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. So obviously this is 40 days prior after Jesus risen from the dead. And the angel showed up to this group of women. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for a, a crucified Jesus when he's promised you that he's been resurrected? Which I think is a really profound question. Where are you looking? Are you looking at the resurrection as something that happened rather than looking to a resurrected living God who's present in your life? And so I love, I love previously in John 14, 8, when Jesus is teaching his disciples just a few days before his death, 
He has this promise in John 14, 18, says, I will not leave you as orphans. So not only was Jesus alive for 40 days, but remember what we're waiting for? We're waiting on the gift of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is still present to us through the Holy Spirit. He will not leave us as orphans. And so there's two things here that we need to understand when it comes to the Holy Spirit, because he is how we continue to encounter the living God. This is number one is we have to have a greater clarity when it comes to his presence. And secondly, we have to have a greater clarity when it comes to his power, because this is what the Holy Spirit has offered to us. John 14, 16, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. John 16, 7, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in Jesus' mind, when he's thinking about not only his death and resurrection, but his ascension, he knows he's going away. He speaks with such certainty that it's actually good that I'm going away because if I don't go away, then the advocate won't come. Jesus has such a high view of the Holy Spirit that we're not getting kind of like leftovers of Jesus' presence, that we are getting the full presence of God with the Holy Spirit given to us, poured out um, on the day of Pentecost, which is why we wait. We wait on the Holy Spirit, and He's been now given to us. And so this presence is real. That, that word stands out of advocate, and it's the Greek word parakletos. And parakletos is these, these two words put together. And it's translated, if you look at different translations, it's translated lots of different ways. ESV translates that word helper. NIV translate, translates it advocate. The Amplified translates it as intercessor, counselor, strengthener, standby. The King James Version translates it comfort. R.C. Sproul um, has an interesting note on this. He says this, The translators of the King James Version chose to render Paracletus with the English word comforter. Because at that time, the English language was more closely connected to its historical roots in Latin. Today, we understand the word comfort to mean ease and solace in the midst of trouble. But its original meaning was different. It is derived from the Latin word comfortus, which is consistent of a prefix come, meaning with, with, and a root fortis, meaning strong. So originally, the word carried the meaning with strength. Therefore, the King James Version translators were telling us that the Holy Spirit comes to the people of Christ not only to heal their wounds after a battle, but to strengthen them before and during a struggle. The idea that the church operates not only as a hospital, but as an army, and the Holy Spirit comes to comfort, empower, and strengthen Christians. And so the point is, do we see God's presence active in our lives? Or do we view the presence of God as something we visit on Sundays or maybe when we crack open our Bible? Or do we recognize and are aware that he is with us as we go about our day in our car, running our errands, at our jobs, in our studies, in our relationships, with us when we are worshiping and with us when we're sinning, that the Holy Spirit is consistently present to us. Brother Lawrence in his classic, The Practice of the Presence of God, says this, I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in the depth of the center of my soul as much as I can. 
And while I am so with him, I fear nothing. But the least turning from him is insupportable. And something happens when we become increasingly aware of the presence of God. When we heed the angel's question, why do you look for the living among the dead? We are not here to study about a crucified God, but a living God who rose from the dead, whose Holy Spirit is now among us. Now, on one end of that thing, the intimacy and the relationship and the presence is incredibly profound. But what's, what's amazing is Jesus didn't send the Holy Spirit just to be with us, although that's a massive part of it. He came to empower us. Now, um, everyone in, my, in our neighborhood knows that I, I'm just not the tool guy. So whenever there's a project at my house, something breaks, something needs to be fixed, um, I just reach out to the text thread of every other guy in our cul-de-sac who has like just crazy amounts of like power tools and things like that. And it's just kind of this running joke. Um, but I think about some of the projects I would have had to have done without the access to some of the tools that were given to me, specifically some of the power tools that were at hand. And it wasn't like I, I wasn't, wouldn't be able to attempt and maybe sometimes accomplish things. But the effort I would have had to put in would have been significantly more because I would not have had the help of the, of the assistance of the right sort of power behind me. And in the same way, I think oftentimes we view the, the Holy Spirit as, as a gift. He's present to us. We're aware of his presence. But rarely do we lean into the power that he gives to the people of the resurrection, to the followers of Jesus. You see, in Acts 1.8, when talking about this gift, the Holy Spirit, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So when we talk about being a witness for Jesus, if you're trying to do that on your own strength, you will watch that waver to and fro. But when you see the Holy Spirit and sense the presence of the Holy Spirit come on you, one of the primary purposes of that is to empower you to be able to see things differently, speak things differently, to live differently. And once we stop like living out of our own power against doing some of these home projects on your own strength, but then you have the accompaniment, the paracletus, the one who comes alongside, not only to be with you, but to empower you, everything changes Francis Chan in his book, Forgotten God, says this, the world is not moved by love or actions that are of human creation. And the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence in their life is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different and the world cannot help but notice. I love that. The church cannot help but be different. And the world cannot help but notice. When the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit is activated within the people of God. I love Galatians 5.22. It talks about the fruit of what happens when the Holy Spirit is in your life. Because oftentimes, I don't know about you, when I, when I grew up learning about the power of the Holy Spirit... I oftentimes immediately thought of some sort of charismatic personality, uh, spiritual gifts, and, and all of that is a part of it. But what's interesting is when you look at the fruit 
of the Holy Spirit activated in power in someone's life, according to Paul, says that fruit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no laws. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So I want, I want you just to think through what would it look like to be aware of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit and to live empowered by the Holy Spirit, as he says, keeping in step with the Spirit who's already inside of you is that we'd begin to, rather than viewing love, joy, peace, forbearance, all these things as virtues we have to do, we have to work towards, that these are byproducts of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so if you look at that list and you're just like, man, I'm struggling with, with, with love. I'm struggling with having a spirit of gentleness. I'm struggling with being faithful or self-controlled or whatever. There's something on that list your tendency is to want to go without the power tools and to go and work on that project yourself. But we see a culture of resurrection. Our people, disciples, severely flawed, cowards, fearful, turned into incredible evangelists, people doing miracles. And not only is that tied to the resurrection, it's tied to when they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to start bearing these fruits in their lives. Is that love would be a byproduct. Joy would begin to flood out of you. Peace would begin to be evident. Forbearance and kindness and goodness would begin to flow out of who you are because the Spirit of God is now at work in you. He's empowered you to be His witnesses so that when people see you, the world sees you, they're actually seeing the very Spirit of Jesus Christ at work in you. And I just want to tell you, friends, it's not going to happen because you learned something new. It's going to happen when we wait on the Lord, when we position our life to say, Lord, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving Jerusalem. I'm not leaving this upper room until I have spent time with you. Now, what's amazing is we don't have to wait a certain amount of days because the Holy Spirit has already been poured out. But oftentimes the, the, the lack of activity of Holy Spirit in our lives is not because he hasn't shown up. It's because we have not invited him to lead. We have not yielded to the Spirit. So what would it look like for you to wake up and to have a simple prayer, Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide my life? Would you empower me today to love my kids, to honor my teacher, to do well at my job, to, to, to enter into this hard situation, to forgive in the areas that I have bitterness, that love and joy and peace and all of these fruits would begin to start to bear in my life because I can't do this on my own. And the disciples, and that's what I love about it. The resurrection changed them. Don't get me wrong. But it wasn't the resurrection alone. It was the resurrection that then ushered in the Holy Spirit that ultimately changed the disciples that to be the witnesses they were in the ancient world that has flipped the world upside down the last 2,000 years. And this is still what Jesus longs for, that a culture of resurrection not only makes us look back to an event, but invites us to be actively living into the presence of the Holy Spirit now. Which leads to our, the last question that the angels ask. Again, this is back at the tomb. When he's talking to Mary, in John 20, 11, it says, As she wept... She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, 
Why are you crying? And that, that phrase has always stuck out to me. Why are you crying? It's a question that forms culture. Is the, the risen Lord has changed something. Does not mean that we are not people who weep, lament, and grieve. The Bible is very clear. We are invited to do those things as a part of our humanity and our worship to the Lord. But if we do not grieve as the world does. We don't grieve without hope. We do not cry without the reality that every single one of those tears will be wiped away by the scar-filled hand of Jesus Christ someday. Why are you crying? And what she doesn't know is that the resurrected Jesus is closer than she realized. And the invitation to us today in a world filled with heartbreak and sorrow is not to suppress those feelings, but to invite the eternal reality of the risen Christ to form those things, which invites us into a sense of joy. And so I want to, I want to point out two things here. That this question leads to a culture of joy and worship. The tears of Mary very quickly turn to something else. Luke finishes his gospel with this. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with what? With great joy. And they stayed continually in the temple praising God. I love this. They were marked by a blessed joy. That Jesus was blessing him as he was ascending. And they went back to Jerusalem marked by joy. That those who once were having tears days before now could not contain the joy they had. And isn't joy attractive and contagious? Um, Jen and I and our friend Angel, we flew up to Sacramento this week and we went to the rental car place and, and normally like the rental car place is like airports are cool for me. I love airports, but rental car places just feel like stuffy. You just want to get in there and get out. But when we walk to our car, this is older gentleman named Bob meets us. And the only way I can describe it is he was, he was brimming over with joy. Like he just came over and he was like washing our windows. Like, how's your day? What can I do for you? Walking around our car. And, and the whole time we're like looking to like, and this guy loves his job. And we get into the car and we were so blown away by just the joy exuding from Bob. The generic rolls down her window and she says, hey, Bob, um, thank you so much. And he literally, like this guy's in late 70s, skips. He says, have a great day. And just kind of like bows. And we're just like, oh, that was amazing. And we're up in Sacramento a couple days and we get back to the rental car place. And, and you know what we're talking about? Bob. We literally fly back into San Diego, and before, um, before we kind of unpack our bags, you know what we're talking about? Bob, this guy we literally met for 30 seconds, but he was marked by joy. And I don't, we don't know his story, but all we knew is there's something that we're like, what, what is it about you? And that same sort of peculiar joy marked the early church which I think is so amazing. And we just talked about how some of them ended up being martyrs. And it wasn't, it wasn't just their devotion to a sacrificial life. It was their demeanor in a sacrificial life that was marked by joy. And Jesus predicted this. 
As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Also, John 16, 20 and verse 22 says this, Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. So with you, now is the time of your grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. A culture of resurrection is marked by joy. We, it's marked by waiting and witnessing. It's marked by the Holy Spirit's presence and power, but it's also marked by this blessed joy. C.S. Lewis says this, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. You see, we, we assume that to have the kind of the demeanor of Bob or the joy the early church had, that this must be circumstantial. But the Bible is very clear. It is something else. It is in the midst of trials that we can have joy because of the resurrection of Christ, that even death itself cannot rob us of what we have access to. And T. Wright says it well. He says this, we were made for joy, but we settle for pleasure. We were made for justice, but we clamor for vengeance. We're made for relationship, but we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, but we're satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of the present world. That quite simply is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us. This joy inevitably turned into something um, of worship, bold worship. Was in the last verse of Luke. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And what's so remarkable about this is to think about Jesus just ascended. He's not with them anymore. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit. They go back to the temple. They have, they're, they're filled with joy. They're continually there praising God. They're worshiping. They can't help it. But here's what's remarkable is all this is taking place at the temple. This is the same temple. 40 days before they had dispersed and had denied Jesus, fearing for their life. What happened? What happened that moved them from gripping, gripped with fear to a point where they're just continually praising God, marked by joy? This is the culture of the resurrection. That the early church, who was severely persecuted, had something about them that, that couldn't be taken away. This, this worship that was devoted to the Lord. And I think we're all longing for it, aren't we? We're longing for something that does not ebb and flow with the headlines. It doesn't change based on our circumstances. It's something deeper that we can draw from. That there's a sense of like, oh God, you have made me for this. And again, hear me. This is not a suppress or push aside those who are grieving and lamenting. That is a beautiful invitation of Jesus. But what it means is 
when you experience joy, not not circumstantial sort of happiness and pleasure, but a deep-rooted Jesus, you have won the grave. You have offered me new life. Death has been swallowed up in victory kind of joy. And that begins to turn over into worship. Something happens in us and to us. It's interesting in 2009, Trinity College in Dublin conducted a massive longitudinal study on people who regularly attended religious service, services versus people who considered religion important but did not attend worship services. And what they found is that those, again, both groups of people considered faith and religion and, and, and spirituality important, but it was those who worshipped that had significant greater mental and emotional health which I think should not surprise us. There's something about our worship that is connected to our joy. And so what I want to invite you to is in the next few minutes, we're going to be having a worship song coming up on the screen. And and I would just encourage you, even if if you're just having a hard day or something like that, instead of of finding yourself just looking in, and there's, there's a place for that, would you look up? Would you see yourself looking into the eyes of Jesus, proclaiming what he's done, who he is, what he's done inside of you. And because we, as we look back, the resurrection was not just something for us to study and, and ooh and awe over. It changes us. It makes a culture, right? These questions of why do you, what are you looking at? What are you doing here? Why are you wasting your time? It should lead us into waiting and witnessing. That when we have the question, who are you looking for? Why are you looking for a dead Messiah? We're reminded that not only has he raised, he's given us the Holy Spirit, which means we have his presence, which leads to his power. And lastly, because of the resurrection, we now have a culture of blessed joy and bold worship. And so my hope today is that whatever is going on in your life, that they would just move us closer to the reality of the resurrected Christ that marks us, that we wait on him right? That we would be a witness. We would attest to what he's done. That we'd be aware of the presence of God all around us. That we would find ourselves living out of the power of the Holy Spirit, which then leads into being a community and a people marked by joy and worship. And I just want to invite you into that. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll we'll do just that. We will worship the King of Kings, the risen one. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the questions that were asked of the disciples, Lord God, that gave us clues into the type of culture that you had formed. And I pray that that culture of a resurrection would mark our community as well. Would we be people who wait well? God, would we be people who witness boldly? Lord Jesus, would we be people who wait on the presence of the Holy Spirit? Would we be people who live under the power of the Holy Spirit? God, I pray that we'd be a community marked by by joy, Lord Jesus, by blessed joy. And God, I pray that we'd be a community that experiences bold worship, even in the temple courts, the places in our life that feel shameful or fearful. God, we praise you because you're worth it. We praise you because you're risen. Lord, we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.